Today the topic is going to be a continuation of what I started last week, which was Jesus came into our world and speaks to us the truth about heavenly things. Eric, you want to turn your mic on there and, and begin us with prayer? Yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to study through John and to learn more about our Lord and Savior. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that today you'd help us to think well upon the text and help us to make good connections, help us to be good readers of Scripture. And we pray for our teacher, Bob. We thank you for him. We thank you for healing and restoration. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So some of you may not have been here, but I I gave an analogy last week about Jesus teaching us the truth about heavenly things or the, the heavenly realm or the realm that's unseen. And I gave an analogy. So I'm going to reiterate the analogy. And then we want to flesh that out and show how we need to listen to Jesus. Okay. The analogy was about children when they're really young, being willing to believe what the adults tell them, even if it's naive. Okay. And so last week I mentioned the Easter bunny. So if you're going to tell kids there's an Easter bunny, you've got to do it when they're really little because when they get older, they won't believe it. And you don't expect them to. But to have fun uh, or whatever, for whatever reasons, there's Santa Claus, Easter bunny, and it seems like every culture has myth that they like to tell little kids. Now, the expectation is when people grow up, they think like adults and they use their physical senses and their ability to think rationally to understand the world they live in. Now that whole thing is under attack right now. The new age and the Eastern religion and so forth is attacking human rationality on every level. And by attacking that, they're able to attack the claims of the Christian faith that are revealed in the Bible. But Jesus said, when he talked to Nicodemus, that he he, uh, was here to speak the truth and that the earthly things he used, like being born again, was an analogy to reveal the truth about spiritual things. And Jesus, what he said and did, including his resurrection from the dead in the fact that it's emphasized that he really was raised. I'm sure Eric will be preaching about this. The tomb really was empty. But it was important that he appeared before witnesses. Because you and I as human beings are equipped to know things about the world we live in, howbeit in a fallible way because of the fall. That's called the noetic effects of sin. We can function on the earth, but there's a tainted aspect to it because there is such a thing as deception in almost every realm, even the physical realm. We believe things that turn out to not be true. But we want to know what's true and we can at least function. Jesus proved the truth by what he said and did He never lied. He did many works that nobody else could do. 
and that makes people accountable to what he said. In other words, we are morally culpable if we refuse to believe in Christ. What he says will hold true in the heavenly court at the end of the age. And if we don't listen to him, we'll be rightly judged. And he claimed that he came and spoke the truth about heavenly things. And when it comes to the realm of the earthly things, we're easily wrong. But we can't know. When it comes to the heavenly realm, the only thing we know reliably is what's taught to us in the Bible. And that we know in the Bible from Christ and his apostles is the truth. And if we try to gain truth about the unseen realm of the spirits beyond the Bible, we will be deceived 100% of the time without fail. Satan is a liar and the father of it, John 8, 44. The spirits are deceiving spirits. Satan appears as an angel of light, but lies and deceives. So my point that I gave last week was that if we don't listen to what Jesus told us about the spiritual things, we're lost. The spirits are having their way with the whole human race right now because people are going into that realm. Shamanism is on the rise. And I've been preaching about that, and I'll continue to do so in Ephesians. So it's essential to listen to Jesus Christ and his apostles or we will not know anything. We'll be so deceived. We're willing to believe anything. And if you just look at world religions, people will believe anything. Utter mythology, absurdity, irrationality, human tradition. They'll believe anything. But we don't need to. Because Jesus really did come into our world. And he chose the terms. Now, if we get that far, we probably won't. I want to go back into that issue of analogical language about God and how we can know things. Because God chooses the analogy. Remember the born again? Jesus chose the analogy. And he helps us understand that we need to be born anew. So now, I want to continue. That was a review last week. Now let's go to John 5. We're going to do a little stroll through John and the Old Testament and try to understand what John's saying about why we need to listen to Jesus. Now, there was a dispute in John 5. Remember, we did John 9 together, and we referenced back to John 5 where Jesus healed a guy who was lame for many years, but he was healed on the Sabbath. And remember, they got angry and they started a debate with Jesus because he told a man to carry his pallet who had been lame, and it was Sabbath. So they started a dispute. Well, this is still John 5 here that we have in front of you, John 5, 45 and 47. Jesus said this, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Now, this is ironic, because they're saying, We got Moses, what do we need Jesus for? And Jesus is saying, 
because actually his words will be the judge. But he says, no, you're in trouble even if you just go by Moses. You won't even listen to him. If you don't listen to Moses, you're certainly not going to listen to me, even though you think Moses, well, we're from Moses. We follow Moses. We obey Moses. He's our leader. He's our head. So it says there's one who accuses you as Moses and whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, they claim that they did, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus claimed that his very words were the words of God. John claimed that in John 1, 1 through 18. Jesus cannot lie because he's God the Son. God cannot lie. Jesus always speaks the truth. But people don't want to listen to him. But Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Now, the most salient passage, there are many of them, but we'll see several here. But Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. And let's find a reader here. Who wants to read Deuter- find and read Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19? Do I have a reader? Okay, we're, we have a reader, Brian Beers. This is Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see the great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Yeah, so they rebelled against Moses, and so now God's going to raise up the ultimate prophet, the prophet par excellence, Jesus, God the Son, and his words will be binding. So when they reject Jesus, they're in fact rejecting Moses who prophesied about Christ in Deuteronomy 18. So in John 12, 48, I use this in my debate with Doug Paget. John 12, 48, he who rejects me, Jesus said, and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So Jesus claimed he spoke true binding words from God about heavenly things and earthly things, all of which are exactly true. And when I say binding, I mean, if we won't listen to them, we're rebelling against God. Now, the attack against this has been so many, so much philosophy and so many sophisticated ways of attacking what Jesus said. When I debated this emergent fellow, by the way, we just published an article that's basically the first chapter of my book on emergent with a new intro. 
and it's about this. They will attack the idea that words can mean anything. And language games, there, there's all this sophisticated philosophy doubting the ability of words to convey meaning. I cite many of these, so if you read the article, you may think, oh, man, I'm getting a headache. How many footnotes are there here? But here's what you need to know. I needed to deal with them on their level because they mock evangelicals, sometimes rightly so. Most of these emergents left the church because they saw all of this shallowness, the Joel Osteens and the, you know, all of that stuff. So they rightly say, what's this? This is nonsense. It's just market-driven, consumerism. It's not valid. And so they become the intellectuals, and they appeal to young people saying, you don't need all that stuff. It's all coming out of people's bad motives. We've got a better version. So they deny that words can convey valid meaning, and then they go to philosophy, and since anybody can believe anything... They choose to believe the world's evolving into paradise without judgment. That's their essential belief. I went to their conference. I gave my book to, their, to Tony Jones, some of their leader. Not one emergent ever said I misunderstood them. In fact, they knew I understood them. That's what they believe. They believe the German philosophy. Eric and I are going to do radio about this. And so when we go to this, John twelve forty eight, John 5... They have to hope that Jesus lied. Their eternal destiny demands that we don't believe anything Jesus said. Even though they talk about being red-letter Christians. They pick and choose things that sound ideal. The reversal between the rich and the poor and things. There, There will be reversal. But they reject future judgment. So that's why I went to this. So, he who rejects me does not receive my sayings, has one who judge him, the word that I spoke. And it says here, do not think I will accuse you before the Father Moses will. In other words, Moses wrote about Christ. They won't believe him, so they, in fact, don't believe Moses. Think is tokeo in the Greek, and it's imperative. And it means to imagine or to consider or, or to think something appears this way. So that's not going to do it for them. And so we have Jesus. But the fact is, John 5, 22, not even a father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the son. John 5, 22. So Jesus is the eschatological judge. They deny that. The shamanism, the mystics, the, the progressives, that's their term, progressive. They believe there is no judgment in the future. They reject any theology that says God will judge the cosmos. Paradise will come to earth through processes already at work. That's what they believe. And I said, no, it's all a big lie. And it's not going to happen. You're going to face the judge. They, They choose not to believe that. It says in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. We saw that last week, I believe. 
So they asked for a sign, John 6, 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is the prophet who came into the world. So Jesus multiplied bread in John 6. I love that chapter. Isn't that an amazing chapter? <laughs> Multiplies bread. They saw the sign. The masses, when they saw the sign, believed that Jesus was the prophet who came into the world. From Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. They believed that. Let's see what happens. Let's go to John 6. John 6, 41. This is amazing. I'm telling you, nobody could have made this up. The more you know the Bible, the more you have to believe it. You could not make this up. Nobody would be brilliant enough to make this all work and actually happen before witnesses. God actually did it. John 6, 41. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Now, between that earlier verse where they said this is the prophet, a lot of things happened. They wanted to make him king. Why? Because, see, in their world, if you could have free bread, you had everything you needed. You had a king who would guarantee you're going to have bread even when there was crop failure. They want to make him king. Why should we do all this work? We'll just have five loaves and however many they had, like 12 loaves. How many loaves did they have? They all divides it all. They feed the multitudes. So he multiplies the bread, which reminded them of the, of the bread in the wilderness, the manna. He walks on water. Now, if you have been following us, in their world, water was bad. The sea was bad. The sea was an evil place full of demons. And if you died there, you had some question whether the resurrection would even get to you. The sea was ominous, horrible, and evil. And that's where Satan and demons were. The heavens were bad, too. That's another story. I'll talk about that in Ephesians. So he walks on the water. They get in boats. They come and find him. They want to make him the king. And then there are a debate happens between Jesus and all these people. I want you to see what's going on. So I, I put on my slide here, Exodus 16, 2 and 3a. There's a replay. Notice I have highlighted in red grumbling. Keep that word in mind. The Greek word is gangudzo. It's a word where the sound is kind of interesting. It's like the word murmur, 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 murmur. The crowd was murmuring. Means they don't like it. So grumbling was gangudzo. Murmur, murmur, grumble, grumble, grumble. Okay, so when Jesus said he was the bread that came out of heaven, not just the physical bread they wanted to eat. Remember he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life within you. So all this grumbling, they're using this word gangudzo. They said, we want Moses. Moses gave us bread. What? Come on. Uh, Exodus 16, 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled. And in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's the same word with a dia prefix, dia gangudzo. They grumbled. So this is a review in John of what happened in the wilderness. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt 
when we said by pots of meat and we eat bread to the full. Now, I don't have time to, to bring you through all of this, but just keep thinking about it and learning it. They were in Egypt. They cried out to God, this is awful. We're slaves. Get us out of here. So he gets them out. And, he, and then he said, we don't have anything to eat. So he gives them bread. Then they grumbled. I wish we were back in Egypt. When I was a young man, uh, as a new Christian, uh, Keith Green was a, made music that we liked to listen to. And he had a song called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt Where It's Warm and Secure. Well, Egypt wasn't bad. Being a slave wasn't so bad. Oh, we had all kinds. We had meat. Not this loathsome bread. So they grumble in Egypt. They grumble in the wilderness. Then the Messiah himself comes, God the Son, and he gives them bread, multiplies it, and they grumble again. And the Greek words are purposeful allusions to show that this history is being repeated. Grumble, grumble, grumble. No matter what God decides to provide for his people, they don't like it. Why? Because they want to be in charge. They want to complain. They want God to do their bidding. We're going to make you king. And you're going to make us bread. No, I'm going to die on the cross. The bread I give is my body. My broken body is life for the world. And you just read John 6 and it gets down to, from the multitudes wanting to make him king. At the end, the, Jesus asked his own disciples, are you going to leave too? They wanted to leave. But Peter said, where shall we go? Only you have the words of life. So this is pretty amazing. So it says in John 6, 30 through 32, if you want to, let's turn that there together. I want to get you up to where this is all happening. John 6, 30 through 32. One of our goals is to learn how to read. John would be a good place to start. John is telling us things and we need to know how to read so we get it. Are we willing to accept God's provision on his terms or are we going to be in charge and tell God what he has to do? And then when he does it, we'll grumble anyhow. John 6, 30 through 32. So they said to him, this is after he multiplied the bread and all these things happened. So they want more signs. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Well, you already multiplied the bread and fishes. You already walked on the water. Now what are you going to do? See, they want him to jump through the hoop when they tell him to. John six thirty one. Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they know the Bible. That was from Psalm seventy eight twenty four and another passage. John 6, 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So that true bread is Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death for sins. So in 
the wilderness. They said it was better in Egypt. In Jesus' day, it was better in the wilderness. We had Moses. You got to do something better than that. And this is our lesson. Fallen sinners want God to do things on their terms. They refuse to come to him on his terms. Now, this is very important. We need to know what John is saying because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what God is saying to us. The reason the whole seeker church movement is invalid is because it assumes that you can do something to attract people and it would be a good thing. If we did more miracles, then people would come. New Apostolic Reformation. If we had more human wisdom that didn't offend people, then they would come. If we had more entertainment, if we had better music, if we had a, 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 a light show, or if we had, what are they like to go? Let's just give them that. But see, when you give people what they want, it, they're just going to demand something different. They're in charge. How do you find salvation by just getting what you wanted when you didn't want to serve God anyhow? The only thing we have that's going to do anybody any good is the truth that's been revealed once for all to the saints. We need to preach the terms that God has laid out by which we can come to him and find salvation, not try to attract people based on their own inclinations. They didn't like anything. Jesus, the son of God, was on history, on the scene of history, doing things nobody ever did before, and they ended up grumbling. John seven sixteen. now this keeps going on. You've got to learn how to read this. John 5, he did a miracle. They accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. John 6, he did a miracle. They decided that he wouldn't do things on their terms. They didn't like his teaching, so they left. So John 7, now we're coming into Jesus going to the Jerusalem where the leaders are. It's the Feast of Booze. And there we have another confrontation. John 7, 16, so Jesus answered him and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Again and again and again, John is telling us that Jesus, the pre-existent son, who was face to face with God, John 1.1, was sent into the world. The one who the Father sent is Jesus. So this isn't my teaching. I'm telling you the very words of God. Now, there were, remember, they were debating him. They didn't like him. He was a Sabbath breaker. So a dispute starts with the leadership in Judea between him and the leaders there in Jerusalem. John seven twenty three and 24. Jesus confronts them about their claim he was a Sabbath breaker. Therefore, they claimed he was a sinner. If Jesus is a sinner, then we don't have to listen to him. John 7, 23, 24. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, you are angry with me. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? That happened back in John 5. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. 
so what, what's going on here? He healed a lame man who was laying there by that pool in John 5 and started this whole controversy about Jesus being a sinner. Now, they were being hypocritical. They had in their ethical system, which isn't really a bad ethical system, it's one that we would affirm that the scripture tells us what the greater good is. So, you're not supposed to work on Sabbath. Somehow that became the only thing that mattered in their minds. But Jesus healed a layman on Sabbath. So he's a sinner and they won't listen to him. So he comes to, back to the headquarters there, Jerusalem, Feast of, Feast of Booths. And he says to them, and this was their practice, you have to circumcise a male child on the eighth day to keep covenant. But what if the eighth day happened to be on Shabbat? Now you have a predicament. You're going to have to break Sabbath or to do the work of circumcision, or you're going to have to fail on the law of the circumcision. So the rabbis and teachers had to made a decision that the greater good was to keep the circumcision. It's more important than Sabbath. So therefore, you could circumcise a male child on the eighth day, even if it was Shabbat, and not sin. So Jesus, knowing that they had that decision that had made, been made, said to them, that's what you do, so why are you calling me a sinner? Because you're just dealing with the foreskin on Shabbat. I healed the whole man, and you persecute me? You won't listen to me. You won't listen to Moses. You won't listen to God. You're in rebellion, even though you pat yourself on the back and say we're righteous. We're the good people. We're the ones that God's happy with. We're the ones that are doing the right thing. So Jesus came from heaven, spoke the very words of God. They didn't want to listen to him. Um, Whose Bible is open to John 7? Anybody quickly here? I need verses 17 to 19. John 7, John 7, 17 to 19. Okay, Brian. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Okay. Anyone's willing to do his will. Are we willing to come to God on his terms? John 5 would say most are not. John 6 would say most would, were not. John 7 is starting to say they aren't. Remember John 6? His flesh and his blood for the life of the world? No, we're offended. We, won't, we don't want to hear it. You've got to come to me. I speak the words of God. Are you willing to come to Jesus on his terms? Yes or no? Who is he? Is there enough evidence to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Was he really raised from the dead? Yes. Did he appear objectively on earth in ways that us people who are fallen sinners can even see? 
the Christian claim is that Jesus was raised. We are not asking anybody to believe a myth. I left the church when three different ordained ministers told me that these things never happened. Okay, so that's why I left. I was 16, and an elderly guy who taught the Bible class at camp said, you don't have to believe these things. There's no miracles. There's no resurrection. We just need to be good people. And I decided I could be a good person on the golf course. But see, rationalism, had, they were afraid to lose people because of rationalism. Germany always is where this stuff comes from. Originally, German rationalism said, modern man can't believe in miracles, can't believe in supernatural. Then you can't even believe human language. We just have philosophy. But dear ones, if Jesus was not literally raised from the dead, what did Paul say? We are of all men most miserable. I believe it really happened. I believe it. When I knew that it really happened, I, I was, my life changed forever. We're not being told believe against the evidence. We're being told believe because of the evidence. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Has anybody ever convincingly proved that there was a dead body in the tomb of Jesus? You know, I love Matthew. What happened in Matthew? You know who knew more about the resurrection than even the disciples? Yeah, and the guards. You know what's the guards, right? Who wants to answer this? What happened to the guards who knew the tomb was empty? On the mic. They were paid off by the leadership of Israel, and they're to concoct a story that they fell asleep. And what's interesting about that is if they (laughs) fell asleep, that's a capital offense. So why weren't they ever put to death because of that? Well, there's real collusion going on, unlike the false collusion charges today. But there was real (laughs) collusion between the leadership of Israel and the leadership of Rome at that time. And so they were paid off to say, yeah. And then, by the way, the story changes. 600 years later, the story changes from the disciples stole the body. Toledoth Yeshua says, well, actually, it was a gardener who stole the body. So even their story started to change over time. Yeah, the story changed. Political expediency was, was more important than the truth. Today, this today is called Easter by modern terminology. It's the day of the resurrection. Some of us don't like that term, but usage determines meaning. So we, today is the day we remember that Christ was really raised. Let's all ask ourselves this. What's more important to me? today the truth and what implications that truth has in my life or political expediency popularity with the people we see that in the gospels not losing status with Rome we see that in the gospels and acts we don't want Rome to come and take away our status Popularity with the religious leaders of the day, whichever ones they might be. Peace and safety with whoever. Because let me tell you honestly, the truth is, 
If you believe the truth, if any man is willing to do my will, he will know the truth that I speak from God. If you do believe that, you might lose a lot. Your family may not want anything to do with you. Not always, but that happens. You may not have power and prestige within your denomination if you're in a Christian denomination. If you're in a different religion and you examine these things and you come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be based on evidence, you might be excommunicated right out of your religion. You probably will. You'll be hated. You'll be rejected. You'll be scorned. You'll be ridiculed. But you'll have eternal life. And you'll have a new and better family, the family of God. And that hasn't changed. Now that I have emails coming in from all over the world, the same thing happens over and over as happened in the Bible. When an email went out from my daughter to say that when I was so sick, it didn't look like I might live. And she sent out a prayer request all around to all of our CIC readers. And I got an email back from a Christian couple in South Africa. And they said, uh, we know what it's like to not know if we're going to be alive tomorrow. In our case, it's because of political and religious persecution. We may not be here tomorrow because that's how intense it is here for Christians. They hate us. They want us dead. And they, that was, I loved getting that email. So they said, our heart goes out to you. But that's really often the case for Christians. In my case, I lived, and I'm back here teaching and preaching. We need to believe the truth because it is true. We can't pretend that we don't know any better. If I ever asked anybody to believe what I thought was a myth, that, that would be a huge moral failure as a teacher. I'm morally obligated to tell you what the Bible says. You're free to correct it with evidence. I believe in the priesthood of every believer. But together, we need to know what God said. So what's more important than Shabbat? Messianic salvation. Jesus said to those who were calling him a sinner, he said to the people that were their victims, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and learn of me, because I'm meek and lowly. That was at the end of Matthew 11. Guess what happened next? Sabbath controversies. Remember that? Matthew 12? The disciples picked grain. They were going along a journey, and they were hungry, so they grabbed some grain. Well, that was Sabbath. Your disciples were Sabbath breakers. They'd rather have religious ceremony than salvation. If you're hearing me, today and or here in person or when it goes on the internet let's think about that today would I rather have convenience and popularity or to embrace the truth and have salvation true rest is found in Christ you can keep Sabbath until the day you die and be uh, meticulous about it but if you don't come to Christ, you're still lost. Is that true? Go ahead, Eric, please. You know, Bob, you make a good point referencing that Matthew 12. It's interesting when Jesus is refuting 
the claims that he's a Sabbath breaker. He appeals again, just as we saw in John 7, back to the temple. And he says, those who work in the temple sacrifice on Sabbath, and yet they're not Sabbath breakers. And then he says to them, but I tell you the truth, one greater than the temple is here. So how can he be a Sabbath breaker? And the point being is, if the work of the blood of bulls and goats, according to Hebrews 10.4, never really did provide atonement, all of the work of the priests were ultimately foreshadowing Christ. So the work in the temple on Sabbath was okay. Therefore, how much more to what it foreshadowed, the fulfillment and the actual atonement that Jesus Christ provides. And that's the argument he makes. That's why he's the Lord of Sabbath. He's the one that all of it's about. In him we have our Sabbath rest. So Sabbath isn't found on a day, but it's found in him. In a person. In a person. And Hebrews says the same thing. Amen. It's so great. I'm enjoying editing our old radio shows from Hebrews uh, because we're going through this. Now it's going to be the Melchizedek priesthood. You think, why would anybody go back to something so obscure as Melchizedek to prove a point? Well, the point is Jesus is greater than the Levites. Melchizedek prefigured Christ. That'll come up in Hebrews if you're listening along. Now let's go to Isaiah, I want to talk about Jesus knowing all things, being God, even the heart knower. And if we don't listen to him, we're going to be like a human being who's 35 years old and literally believes in the Easter Bunny. That'd be embar- Wouldn't that be embarrassing? Oh, there really is an Easter Bunny. <laughs> You know, when you're a kid, it's funny, it's cute, I guess. But we need to give up childish things and believe cold, sober truth. Now, let's go back to the prophecy about Christ in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. Then a 4a. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. And a brand, Jesse was the father of David. Is that correct? And so this is a Davidic prophecy about the Davidic Messiah. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. What happened to Jesus? Didn't the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove, right? And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now look at what I have highlighted on the slide in red. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the, for the afflicted of the earth. Now, please think about what this is claiming about Jesus our Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy. In human court of law, especially in the Old Testament, every fact is to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Is that not correct? So if you're going to testify in a court of law, you have to testify about what you saw and heard. In other words, things that can be known by human beings in our realm with the physical senses and reasoning capabilities that God gave us. That's how we decide things when we try things in court. 
That's one of the things that I think one of my chapters in Emergent, I talk about how you couldn't have a court system if they were right. Because words can't describe reality, so nobody could testify about anything. Yeah, but you had a smoking gun and you had a motive and there was a dead body and blood all over the, uh, all over and smoke, the, the residue was on the person. Oh, that's your reality. In my reality, it's all peace and good. See, they, they can't even have a court. But see, a human judge can only base, hear testimony based on what you've seen here. Well, what's different about Messiah? He is God who knows all things. He actually knows the thought and intent of the heart. If any of us is at all honest, and by God's grace, I hope we all are, the idea that God knows the heart is very scary. It is to me. You know, when I start thinking, oh, so-and-so, why'd they do this, or what's wrong with this person? and well, Then I start thinking about my own self. We have to know the blood of Jesus cleanses us and cleanses even our conscience because God knowing the heart is not comforting unless you're a hypocrite. It's not comforting to me, but that Jesus died for my sins is very comforting. i got to admit, I, back when they had the Bronson movies, I liked it. <laughs> the bad guys all get blown away. Kill them all right now. So uh, we need to know that God does know the heart, but he offers forgiveness and cleansing, does he not? Now, I have a quote from a good commentary I have on Isaiah. This, Dr. Oswald says, it's not according to what his eyes see appears to be a reference to more than, a merely, than, than merely human character possessed by the Messiah. A human judge, can, says Oswald, can do no more than make the best of use of his or her natural faculties in attempting to reach a fair ruling. Somehow this king will go deeper than that and will pierce beneath appearances to the underlying reality. This is a sweeping promise for, as Young observes, absolute justice demands absolute knowledge. In this light, he continues to say, it must be obvious that the king for whom Isaiah looks is more than a new addition of the present monarchy. Rather, he's looking for a radically different kind of kingship. So you are a king. He's a king who knows the heart and who will judge with righteous judgment, whose eyes pierce beyond the outward appearance into the, the motives and intent of the heart. And those who hear that and are honest are pierced to the heart. We see in Acts people being pierced to the heart. What can we do? Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God knows the heart. Now, 
I preached on, remember I referenced Jeremiah 17, blessed is the man who trusts in man, or God, cursed is the man who trusts in man. That, those passages are on each side of this thing about God knows the heart. If we trust in ourselves, I'm a righteous man, I have power, I have money, I'm a good person, everybody should be happy to be around me. That's trusting in man. And what does it say? The heart is deceitful. The heart is wicked. We need somebody to help us. If I trust me, I'm in bad shape. I'll fail God every single time if I trust me. Blessed is the person who trusts in God. It says in Acts 15 and verse 8, and God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. God knows the heart. How could God save Gentiles? Well, God knows the heart, and he gave them the Holy Spirit. So salvation must be available to Gentiles. But how could he do that? They're so unclean. They're so immoral. They're they're so disgusting. We've got to go into the same church with them and break bread at communion, 1 Corinthians. The Gentiles... We'll get to that in Ephesians. Well, the Gentiles that are converted need to not live like they used to. But the Jews who are converted can't live like they're self-righteous either. We've got to all serve God together by his grace. God gave them the spirit because they were forgiven and they trust in Christ. Yes. You know, Bob, it's so interesting on that Isaiah. I'm sorry. Could you just back up one um, slide? You know, notice where it says that a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. There's this Messiah. He's going to be a man. Koter in Greek, he's going to be a shoot that comes from this stump. Jesse is the reference to the father of David. Well, at Mm -hmm. that time, the Davidic kingdom was diminished. There was just a little bit left. So this image is a little, a shoot is going to spring up from a fallen stump, a a giant tree that's been fallen. That's the Davidic kingdom. It's in, it's in ruin. So a little shoot's going to come up, but notice that's a man. But if you go to verse 10 of Isaiah 11, now it's the root of Jesse. So verse one, the shoot, he's a man. Verse 10, it's the root. Well, who's the root of Jesse? Well, that's God. And so that's the God man in Isaiah 11, one and 10. And so that's why we know. And so this is absolutely hard for the people in Isaiah's day to understand. How could you have someone who's the shoot of Jesse, but also the root of Jesse? Well, the God man answers it. He's both. Amen. Good. That's a good reading. Yeah, Yeah, but you don't drink coffee. If you don't drink coffee, I can't help you. Now, let's see if we can quick finish this up. This is Jesus before Pilate. John eighteen thirty six. I'm just doing a walk through John here on the issue of how we need to relate to Christ as the judge and the king and the one who reveals the truth. John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. Remember, Peter for a moment thought maybe that was a good idea. It wasn't right, was it? But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm, literally from here. It's not from here. See, they wanted to make him king in John 6. When you're learning to read, always remember what you read before. 
There's reviews and previews. There's allusions. There's references to the Old Testament. There's things that we're supposed to see. In John 6, they wanted to make him king because he could multiply bread. He'd give us free food. We don't have to plant anymore. Here, the king or the governor is thinking, well, is this guy a threat to me or not? Jesus is clarifying, no, I'm not. In other words, he wasn't going to take a chunk of geography on the earth, just part of it, and say, that's mine, and I'm going to fight, or I'm going to take over the Roman Empire, or I'm going to take over America, which didn't exist. Now, we're going to try to do this or that. No, my kingdom is not of this realm. The domain of God's reign is entered by faith. We must be born again, John 3, 3. That goes back to where we started with Nicodemus. You don't believe me about earthly things. How are you going to believe me if I tell you about heavenly? If you're going to enter into the reign of God, you must be willing to do his will, which is to believe on the one whom the Father sent, John 6, 29. This is the work of God, that you believe on the one whom the Father sent. We enter the kingdom by faith. We don't fight for territory. We believe the promises of God. Jesus came into this world, and those who reject him have rejected the truth. We'll see that in verse 37. He who comes from above, John 3:31, is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. That was Jesus. Now let me make a couple of comments. I got one more slide that I hope to get to here. This is my statement. This does not imply that the kingdom is merely subjective ideas in people's minds. I'm not saying that. That it's heavenly doesn't mean it's not real. He really does reign. And he really is coming again. And he really will keep his promises to ethnic national Israel. And eventually he, there will be a millennial reign. It says in Revelation eleven fifteen, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. This is real. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you need to believe in him whom the Father sent, that is Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. John 18, 37 and 38a. Therefore, Pilate, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Remember Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this realm. Oh, so you do have a kingdom. You are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this, I have been born, quoting Jesus, and for this I have, notice again our idea in John, come into the world. That's pre-existence. For this I have come into the world. What? To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth 
hears my voice. Remember John 7? Are you willing to do his will? Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to understand it and believe it? Are you of the truth or do you, do you prefer lies? Those Pilate's response, what is truth? Pilate was an emergent. <laughs> Postmodern theologian. But really what Pilate was was practical. All right, I'll still have my kingdom under Rome and nobody will disturb me. His truth is no threat to me. If he wants to be a philosopher or whatever, he is fine. I don't care what is truth. The term truth is found 26 times in John. That truth with a definite article is used synonymously with the person of Christ and it's used synonymously in the Bible for the gospel. It says in John 8, 47, as we close here, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. That's what Jesus said. They wanted to stone him for that. John 10, 26 and 27. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That means believing the gospel. It doesn't mean contemplative prayer, by the way. Going into the realm of the spirits and trying to figure that out. It's not what it says. 1 John 4, 6, going forward to 1 John. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And one last verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive, decomai, welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved today as we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Let's ask ourselves one question. Do we love the truth? Is the truth so important that it's the very nature of Jesus Christ to speak the truth and it's the nature of salvation to believe the truth. May we believe the truth and welcome it and be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son Jesus and raising him from the dead. May our hearts be softened so that we see how badly we need you. May we welcome the truth because we know we need you to cleanse us from the inside out. Thank you, Lord. And we pray if there's any here that don't know you today, they would come to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.